Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Shari Brown, a doctoral student in clinical psychology at University of Hawaii at Manoa, whose clinical research and mentorship experiences are focused on LGBTQ and BIPOC populations. Shari is originally from Jamaica and identifies as a black queer immigrant. These identities inform her interests and perspectives on these topics. Shari, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. I know we've been talking about doing this for a while since before COVID and yeah. things sort of got uh, derailed and sidetracked and now we're finally back on track. So it's great to have you here. Yeah, yeah. It has been quite the long time coming. So our topic today is multiple minority identities. And I'm really excited to talk with you about your thoughts on the subject. And I think a good way to start here is to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got into the field and anything you'd like to share about your personal and professional life that will help us understand you a little bit better and why this topic matter is interesting and important to you. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm a graduate student at UH in the clinical psychology program. I'm in my fifth year now, going into my sixth, uh, hoping to apply for internship. And uh, really, I came to UH because uh, my I had found my advisor's research on gay and lesbian people in the past, and I was really looking for somewhere that would allow me to do research uh, with gay and lesbian populations, or more broadly, LGBTQ populations. That's really a big part of why I came here. Um, and it's hard to say when I first became interested in that as a topic of study. Uh, I think it's probably a typical case of me search, as we right. often say uh, in psychology. Um, definitely growing up in Jamaica, it's not discussing sexual orientation and gender. It was definitely not something I felt free to do. I, I had friends who identified as queer, um, or we wouldn't have used queer back then, um, but like gay, lesbian, bisexual, um, but we were definitely a small group and there was definitely a feeling that we couldn't really talk about it much um, outside of that group. So uh, when I uh, went to undergrad in Canada and things were so open and free, um, I really sort of dove into connecting with people about their identities and just got really interested in wanting to delve more into that. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, that's what brought me to doing LGBTQ research. I really can't remember uh, what brought me to psychology. I've wanted to be a psychologist from somewhere between ninth and 11th grade that kicked in. I'm not really sure why, um, but it just kind of stuck. And so I've always felt like I get excited and uh, happy to, to do LGBTQ research in psychology. So it's just <laughs> something I've stuck with. Yeah, I think psychology is a great field for you to do this kind of work and explore mm -hmm. these issues. And I'm really excited that you have a future in this and will be a good voice for these topics that you're interested in. You mentioned that you identify as black and queer. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about your thoughts about coming from Jamaica and you've been living in Canada and the United States for some time now. I know that you still have family and ties back in Jamaica, but what are some of your 
observations about similarities and differences you might see about the two places and your cultural background. You have a unique and interesting perspective having come from another place and now living in the United States. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I've been outside of Jamaica for just about almost exactly a decade now. Um, and so uh, definitely in my earlier years, I was still reticent to openly identify um, as queer. And when I was in Canada, I didn't have much overlap between, I would say, my Caribbean communities, um, the people who were immigrants from the Caribbean who I connected with in school there, and my uh, LGBTQ communities. And even the LGBT communities I w- was in didn't have very many Black people in it. So it still felt very separate, but moving to Hawaii, even though there aren't very many Black people here, the intersections and groups really wanting to talk about the intersections between race and queerness really seemed to be more of a priority. I don't know if it was just the social context of the time or if it has something to do with the U.S. um, specifically, but that's when I really started to think about the differences and the importance and the value in uh, having sort of an integrated identity between uh, race and LGBTQ identity. And uh, in terms of thinking about how that connects to being back home, it connects a lot because my experiences as a black person from the Caribbean are wildly different than African-American experiences. And the more I connect with uh, other African-Americans or do research in this area, which at least in my uh, exploration is most of the research I find on the intersections between race and queerness focuses on black people. It really shows how different my experience as a black person is. I've definitely experienced racism, but uh, my predominant experience is with colorism. Um, Not growing up with a predominantly white culture definitely changes that. But I also think I have far more experiences, or maybe not more, but I the experience of homophobia being a norm, the experience of growing up in a place where there's no separation between religion and institutions, like my school being a place where I once had to sit through a lecture from someone whose professional job was being an ex-lesbian and helping, and she was brought to the school to help students (laughs) come away from that lifestyle and that being a thing that like your school can endorse and nothing is wrong with that. Um, That that must have been a painful lecture to hear. I mean, it's strange to think about it because I don't think I thought about it as painful at the time because it was so normal. I remember Mm. myself and my queer-identified friends just kind of laughing. It wasn't anything that we, I think, felt pained about more so as, well, this is just another dumb school thing we have to sit through because it was so normal versus now that I've been outside of the um, country for so long, if I heard of heard of or had to see anything like that or knew something like that was be happening i'd be livid sure Um, so the emotional experience is so different when i don't even know if you'd call that a microaggression it's pretty overt um pretty overt (laughs) yeah but the emotional experience is so different when that's just your day-to-day this is what you expect you don't expect anything else versus when your expectations are to be treated with respect and to be treated as like your identities are valid. So that's definitely something I puzzle over sometimes because I mean, on one end, it does feel like there is some sort of a mental protective quality to, I feel like I was less affected back then on an emotional level, but in other ways, 
you know, I was younger. I wasn't an adult. I wasn't thinking about wanting to live my life authentically and openly and freely Mm -hmm. then. So if I stayed in Jamaica, I may have come to appreciate that kind of constant daily oppression differently when I was trying to actually live as a fully free adult. Sure. I I imagine it must have been a little bit like just tuning it out for emotional survival. But once you become a lot more aware of these issues and they're more important to you. I feel like there's there's a quality to that I'm trying to kind of verbalize that is hard to put in words. Like when I was growing up, there wasn't an intentional suppression of negative emotions about it. There, There's some sort of sense that Jamaicans don't like we don't have queer people um Mm -hmm. this is just not something we do uh there is even a vein of like that's white people stuff um so it's almost like that's just not a part of your culture and i guess there is some resilience in the small groups that people connect to and find joy and pleasure and safety in Um, but yeah the consideration that you could live openly and freely like that wasn't even um a thought which has changed. I, like I said, it's been a decade since I've been away. Groups have tried to advocate. We now have like annual pride events, which is something I couldn't even have imagined when I was there. Yeah, so wow. I don't know what it's like now, but uh, it does feel like once you get to the point of trying to strive for rights, things are going to get a little bit worse before they get better. So I really do wonder how people are sitting with it now there. Let's talk a little bit about identity. I know this is a very complicated concept in general, and we're talking about multiple minority identities today. But Mm -hmm. to start with, when you think of the concept of identity, how do you sort of define it and wrap your head around it? Well, I think about, uh, just to to relate it to myself, I think about my personal identity as uh, something that is describes groups that I identify with um, or describes something that it's important to how I think of myself or conceptualize myself. Um, So like I identify as a black queer person. Um, Blackness is definitely something that is important for me to identify with because to not identify with that, it's hard to describe. It would would feel sort of like self-denial, but also like I wouldn't be able to reach a positive sense of self in this current society um if i didn't strongly identify with blackness um Mm. that feels like it's a necessary pathway for me personally to be able to be someone with a healthy self-esteem and a little bit the same with queerness um so they they do feel like important um ways of connecting with myself and also with groups of people who i expect i will have things in common with yeah as one who has lived in a few different places and traveled around. Can you mention a little bit about some of the nuances around gender and sexual identity and also around ethnic and racial identity? Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like that changes a lot. Um, Like, growing up, um, being black did not mean what it means to me here. Uh, Being black in Jamaica meant that I had dark skin. It had nothing to do with my biological background (laughs) um it just meant you're someone with dark skin you could have the same like i i have cousins who you know share my dna and my um background who are much lighter skin than me and we would never call them black back home they're either brown or red or something like that and i remember that being a point of confusion when i moved to canada because i had a friend who i grew up with um who was brown 
but she was uh, referred to as black and she wasn't used to that. Um, and it was confusing for us because brown meant something else in Canada. And so, yeah, when I moved to Canada, there were groups who identified as black and they were usually black Canadian. I usually identified as Caribbean or Jamaican. Uh, and then other people identified as African. Like there was definitely a different uh, connotation there of what it meant to be black. And then here, um, I, I'm very frequently uh, correcting people when they refer to me as African American. So it, it definitely changes just based on the context of where you are. Black is definitely something that for the most part always applies. But yeah, I would say depending on where I've been, I've definitely identified with different terms or phrases because it affects how the society views me. The society takes a huge role in the categorizing. Yeah, I think that people need to be aware that you can't lump everybody in one category, right? Mm -hmm. Like people are have so many more differences and unique aspects of their individuality and their identity than they can be lumped in just one group of people. So I think that's important when you say that, you know, to be black, you, you, you could be from a different country, from a different cultural background, mm -hmm. religious background even, and all of those things are part of the identity, it sounds like. It is, but that it's also complicated too, because I do think there is some importance of keeping the group broader than narrow. And I think that's something that's a little bit rife because that whole one drop rule that has broadened what it means to be black was not something decided by black people. It was something decided by segregation and um, things that were meant to keep as many black people away from access to resources as possible. But in the times that we are in now, it does feel important that anyone who has any connection or identification with black struggle should be included in that group. So I, I, I often fall on the side of, uh, yes, like definitely nuance the label so we're not all seen as a monolith, but at the same time, like everybody who has any connection to blackness should be included or should have a label or a group that they connect with so that we can all sort of unify in a way. Let's talk a little bit about intersectionality and multiple minority identities. So we've started on that vein a little bit. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important because just like as we were saying, there's so many nuances to everyone's experience. Yeah. It's, it's different to be a black queer person than to be someone who's black and not queer. It's different to be black and trans as someone who is black and cisgendered. It's diff cisgender. It's different to be a woman who is black versus a man who is black. All of these things come with different social realities and to not consider that um, really can lead to problems with trying to do appropriate social justice work, trying to really consider what needs someone may have. Yeah, I think we've had a lot of trouble in the past in like older social justice movements with women's needs not being considered enough um, in black spaces and with queer needs not being considered enough or with queer people feeling rejected from black spaces, um, especially when it's important for them to have a space of acceptance because they might not, their blackness might not be accepted in LGBTQ spaces. And I'm focusing on blackness, of course, because that's mm -hmm. the experience I can identify with. But I definitely have friends uh, who have spoken about similar types of needs from other people of color groups for queer individuals. So when we think about blackness and queerness specifically, since those are two identities that you can relate to the most on a personal level, 
What do you think are the commonalities and differences of experiences? I mean, there's definitely a common experience of a long history of discrimination. And in some ways, the importance of considering the intersectionality of it is remembering that queer people were always at the midst of or included in any black struggles and black people were included in the midst of mm. any queer struggles. And so the the similarities is almost so much as that we're the same people that we're, we're never, they're never groups that don't include people with those multiple identities, but we're often lower on the totem pole or like having to sacrifice some of our rights for the rights of the bigger movement. Um, like thinking about Stonewall and I think there was a movie made about Stonewall that kind of focused on white gay men and completely negated the fact that Stonewall was a place that black trans people tended to gravitate to or that it was focused on that community more so than white gay men. Not to say that white gay men weren't there, um, but to erase the black trans person's story in discussion of that momentous event in U.S. history completely changes the narrative of why police were there. Police weren't only there because white gay men were there. They probably actually wouldn't have been there as much. There's racism involved in that. Mm -hmm. um, and there was transphobia involved in that. And so when we don't integrate multiple identities, we don't actually understand what's happening. I think that a situation is about um, homophobia when it's actually about homophobia, transphobia, racism altogether. And that's actually the reason why things escalate the way they do. Got it. Back to Stonewall for a moment. Could you give us a brief synopsis of what happened there for those <laughs> listeners who aren't familiar with that event? I don't know that I'm fully qualified to do the best synopsis. It's been a while since I've read or watched something that described it, but I do know it's around late 60s. Um, Stonewall is a, was a bar, or still is, I think, potentially, that many queer people went to and it was a place that it was safe for trans people to express themselves the way they wanted and there were often police raids the riots at stonewall happened ostensibly there are many versions of the story because someone uh, or a group of people were fed up with the raids they wouldn't take it anymore and so a riot started and that's the bedrock of the pride movement in the United States in terms of pride being a march and a protest for rights. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on how the issues that affect black people and LGBTQ plus have come to a head during the recent Black Lives Matters movement. And obviously this last year plus has been a really active and difficult time for this country. Yeah, I think, the, again, they go hand in hand. Uh, you, I, I think one cannot fully acknowledge police brutality and police brutality against black people without acknowledging police brutality against black trans women. Mm. In the same way that we acknowledge that black men are very, very high target for the police, black trans women are such a high target. And so... Again, the LGBT community and the experiences that are core to the experience of being a queer person are the same issues that are core to the experience of being a black person there. And so it was definitely important when the Black Lives Matter movement was gaining uh, recognition worldwide for 
like black trans women to be acknowledged as a one of the primary targets of police brutality in the states and of course that's never the i mean things always uh start out with one person george floyd got things going and then uh, eventually other people get recognized um there are lots of women's movements around brianna taylor and then uh acknowledging the trans people who have been murdered after Tony McCade was killed. Uh, so there usually are these different points when a certain group gets acknowledged. Again, it's always there. It always does feel like uh, LGBTQ people have to wait a little bit longer mm. to get their, their issues heard um, within these matters, even though they're at the forefront of having some of the highest numbers of being at the hands of police brutality. Why do you think that is? Uh, I mean, specifically talking about black trans people, again, transphobia and racism, specifically anti-black racism, are some of the most pervasive for uh, it's hard to and again speaking from my own perspective when i say some of the most pervasive forms of racism or discrimination that i think our society experiences i think i think about that in terms of the predominance um, of anti-black racism or transphobia across the united states trans people still are fighting for rights just basic medical care mm -hmm. there's so many bills right now trying to deny trans people access and then when you intersect that with anti-blackness i mean <laughs> the opportunities and the ability to just find a job to get access to resources to have appropriate medical care all of these things confound to make life hard <laughs> and then you have police disproportionately like shooting and killing people who identify as black and trans everything combines to make situations impossible and difficult mm -hmm. um with the multiple stacks or intersections of the identities that connect, interconnect. Yeah, I guess there's just more and more opportunities for people to find reasons to be racist in those situations when there are multiple identities involved. And so it must just be very challenging. Yeah, I mean, even find reason sounds... Finding a reason to be racist definitely <laughs> sounds like what it feels like sometimes when we watch the police videos, yeah. it seems like. It's like, okay, well, I was afraid because, and you can't say because it was a black person, but you don't have to justify your fear. So instead of saying it was because this person was black, it was because I was afraid. And then adding the transphobia to that, I mean, I know not too long ago, Hawaii just successfully fought back the gay panic law it was called where you could argue that you reacted and beat up a gay or trans person because you didn't know what their gender was like these things are built into the law to give people reasons to be racist and reasons to be transphobic so yeah that, that like feels very apt because there's protections in places that allow you to do that wow sherry i, I didn't know about that law but that oh, yeah. sounds just sort of utterly ridiculous yeah 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 Let's talk a little bit about some specific issues pertaining to individuals who are black and queer. First off, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the concepts and stereotypes of blackness, both within the black community and within the community at large. I actually don't know that I'm 
the best person to talk about stereotypes of blackness, um, just given that I actually learn a lot of them myself um, mm. just in recent years. Um, the stereotypes are very different than the ones I grew up with. I think they're different here than they were in Canada. So I'm going on five years now. I'm kind of catching up, but uh-huh. I still I, I spent those five years in Hawaii. So I actually don't know that I have a full like experiential grasp on um, stereotypes. I, I probably know just as much as someone who's read or seen things on television. So <laughs> I do have, as a black person, a strange perspective on black stereotypes because often uh, someone will bring something up. Like I remember when I was in Canada, I was drinking something, maybe like an energy drink that was purple and someone was like, oh yeah, purple drank like trying to cue me into the fact that it is a stereotype for black people to drink purple drank, which I had never heard of purple drank, much less knowing that it was a stereotype. So I sometimes come at these from a little bit of a different angle. Yeah. If if there's any types that affect me, I think um, I have learned and seen the impact of like being the angry black person um and that was something that i think honestly before moving to the states i couldn't appreciate Mm -hmm. um versus now being here i guess for a couple years but also in this time period it kind of hits me as like well of course black people are angry and it's frustrating that if a black person gets angry if i get angry when like someone uses the n-word around me then i'm seen as an angry black person that is definitely something that i have experienced as stifling Mm -hmm. for sure sounds like kind of a no-win situation absolutely yeah yeah Yeah. sherry as a person who identifies as black and queer tell me what place do you think individuals who are both black and queer have within the lgbtq community that gives them a unique perspective and a unique voice within the community. I mean, I think anybody who is in the intersection of multiple marginalized groups has a unique perspective um, to bring to their communities. So Mm -hmm. whether it is their ethnic minority group communities or their LGBTQ group communities, because the experience is different. Um, so like I bring a different perspective as somebody who is from the Caribbean, who's an immigrant, who is queer because I have different experiences. I have different histories with a microaggression, overt aggression, and all of that factors into how I see the world um, and how I approach problems and how I would, what I would think about prioritizing in social justice and advocacy. And so Everyone, I think, is needed because social justice and human rights will be improved when we have multiple perspectives. So I might be better to think about immigrant needs as someone who's not a citizen and things that are barriers or concerns for me that might not be a concern for someone else. I might be you know, more concerned about losing uh, health insurance or not having a job than someone who has a family to go to uh, in the United States. I might be more concerned about uh, going to a protest and getting arrested by the police as someone who is not a citizen and doesn't know what is going to happen if I get arrested. How does that affect my uh, immigration status? And I might be able to connect more to people who grew up in the Caribbean in places that are homophobic or more with Christianity integrated into their culture and how that affects how they see things. Um, And then in the same way that all of my experiences will 
have me prioritize and focus on and think of different things. It's the same way someone else with a completely different background to myself um, will have nuanced experiences and perspectives that I would never dream of and think of. And so if we don't have that diversity within our groups or marginalized groups, we will not be able to serve a wide range of needs. And I think about that a lot too as a psychologist um, in terms of clinical work. My perspective is only so broad and it's only going to be broadened if I am able to work with other psychologists and other researchers who have varied and different perspectives as well. Yeah, I think it's just critical that we we have people coming from different life experiences to add to our capacity as psychologists and researchers who study people and clinicians who work with people. Sure. And that's always the case with clinical psychologists, because every one of us comes from our own unique backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And it's so important to be able to hear the voice of other professionals and colleagues who can help educate us and learn about the diverse groups. And that's one reason why I like talking to you so much, Sherry, because I'm learning so much about your perspective on things. Yeah, yeah. We talked a little bit, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier today, about religion as it pertains to racial and gender sexuality issues. And I know that these are important factors because a lot of people have strong religious backgrounds and traditions where they come from in the country or from their family of origin. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how religion plays a role and intersects in a person's background. Uh, yeah, I've thought quite a good deal about this, and I still don't have a cohesive answer because it is so nuanced. Mm -hmm. um, people have such a different way that they integrate their experience with religion into their lives, and especially as Black people and queer people. So to speak to my own experience, I grew up as a Christian. My family was very, I wouldn't say we were devout, but we were go to church every Sunday kind of people. But not, I wouldn't say devout because I never felt like I was particularly restricted from doing very much because of religion. And I definitely had peers who were. But as I uh, left home and as I came into my identity as both a queer and a black person and learning black history more so than the Caribbean history that I, I learned growing up, it really was important for me and my identity and my authenticity to step away from Christianity as something that was sort of forced, that I only have because it was forced on me through colonization. That was an important uh, step for me as I was developing as an adult. And it was a very difficult thing to do, but it felt integral. Um, and for me, that had a lot more to do with blackness, honestly, than it had to do with um, queerness, because even as I was coming into my queer identity, um, while I was still identifying as Christian, I was gravitating more towards Christian spaces that were accepting of queer people and that denounced homophobia and mm -hmm. transphobia. Um, and it really wasn't until I was really identifying with how much I would just not be a Christian if it wasn't for slavery and colonization that I realized I needed to divorce it from my life. And so I know that many other people who I've been close to and talked to have had a completely different path. And they've uh, sometimes doubled down in their religion as a space of acceptance. And uh, for other Christians I've known who are queer and black, they've 
just completely rewritten what Christianity is for them and found groups that, you know, completely try to decolonialize and take out all of the negative things out of Christianity and focus on like Jesus's message of just loving your neighbor um, and being a good person. And so I know that trajectories can look so different, even with people with similar identities. Sure. Because people just need different things to feel authentic um, and to feel connected. And so, yeah, it's definitely hard to answer, but it's not a benign role. (laughs) Religion Mm -hmm. is definitely really important, I think, um, especially for black people, because it has been, at at least in the States, it's been such a big part of social justice movements um, and such a big place for healing for some people and community connection. Even myself, even though I don't identify as a Christian anymore, just the fact that that was such a big part of my culture, I find myself identifying with people who are ex-Christians who understand what it was like Mm -hmm. to grow up in that and divorce yourself from it. So that's also still a connection to it. Uh, Yeah, it's a very complex uh, in terms of the multiple ways I think it integrates into minority identities. Let's switch into clinical and clinician mode a little bit here, Sherry. So I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about the concept of resiliency, which is something that you brought up a little earlier today. To you, what does resiliency mean and what does it look like, especially within the multiple minority identity groups that we've been talking about? Yeah, and I'm gonna be different than I would be in my research in the way I answer this question, because in my research I usually try to nail down this is specifically what I'm talking about here. Resiliency, I think, is multi-multifaceted and can look like, you know, not having your psychological well-being being impaired by discrimination in the sense that, like, no matter what happens, you have friends or personal resources that help you to function. Or it can mean, you know, that even though you are shaken daily by the multiple sources of stressors that you have going on, that you have a good connection to be able to like recover from that. Or it it can mean so many things. It can Mm. mean like for, for me, I know that uh, connecting with people who protest and focus on social justice is an important part of mental health. Um, And it's important part. It's important for me to integrate advocacy into my research and into my clinical work and all of those things because I know how important it is for me to thrive as a person. And so the ability, I think, of multiple minority people to identify with uh, these identities that are so denigrated in society, these identities that basically society tells you are not valued as much, that you literally have to be in the streets uh, screaming about your rights to get them the fact that you're able to that we can identify with that and also find strength in that rather than be crippled by it i think is what i think of when i think about resiliency among ethnic and lgbtq well ethnic minority and lgbtq people specifically you know as you talk the word that comes to mind for me is empowerment mm-hmm. kind of like the idea that if i feel empowered to do something or to connect with people who can connect with me and understand me and stand with me, that that kind of empowerment creates a sense of resiliency. Yeah, I think that's extremely important. I mean, when I think about the impact of just having 
other black psychologists around um, and being able to talk about the experiences of being a black psychologist or other queer psychologists around and being able to talk about that. It does feel empowering because it feels like one, I'm not alone, but two, I can be authentic and I can be honest and I can be, I can approach certain issues without fear of judgment or fear of microaggressions uh, with someone who gets it and who has more power and band together with that person to create more power in situations where I might not have much. So yeah, I think empowering does quite fit in even the simplest ways of like it's there with finding a sense of belonging. It's there with community connection. It's there with social support. They feel like a pathway to empowerment. So how would you counsel a client who is feeling disempowered and feeling demoralized <laughs> and just really struggling with these issues that I know are really difficult for people with different different diverse identities? Wow, that sounds like a, an internship question. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't think I have a straightforward answer to that. I mean, I think it, it will depend so much on the individual. I've, I've had and have um, clients who embody these identities, and my approach has varied so much. Uh, I, I think um, in my personal experiences, I, I like when... I'm just heard as a first mm -hmm. baseline. And so I, I try to focus on making sure that I understand the experience through their eyes and I'm not overlapping my experience or my expectations of the experience mm -hmm. um, over the narrative um, and just joining with them in terms of like seeing the world through their eyes, getting their emotions, getting their, their needs about it and just going from there. Um, because I think that's one of the most disempowering things in my experience with especially microaggressions since they're so hard to call out that it can be so hard sometimes to get my subjective experience across. Like mm -hmm. uh, I mentioned earlier, like a feeling like how it feels sometimes to like not know if I should say something when someone says the N-word um, around me. A part of that is feeling disempowered because I don't know if I can get my subjective experience across. I don't know if the person will understand why I'm upset, why that was incorrect. Just the fact that they said the word already shows that they kind of don't understand already. Yeah. So I'm at the position of educating. And so when I think of a client who's in that uh, space, I think the best thing I can do, at least as a baseline, is make sure I am listening and in the moment enough so that I can get as much of their subjective experience as possible so that I can at least give them the validation of being heard, being understood in an authentic way. And so that's that's kind of just where I start. Sure. And the reality is, I'm sure that there are no right or wrong answers yeah, about of any of these situations, right? I mean, yeah. they're individualized to the person, yeah. and they're specific to this situation, and it's really tough. So I imagine just feeling like one is being heard and understood in and of itself is the place to start. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sherry, how do you think communities can support minority lives in a way that allow them to be the center of their own movement, but also doesn't constantly re-traumatize them and burden their mental health and their physical safety even further. And so just to check in, when we say communities here, are we thinking like uh, city communities like Honolulu is a community or like uh, institutions, business places? Like, Well, I think actually maybe the communities of people that they belong to. Hmm. 
like the black like a black community, an LGBTQ community, a multiple minority identity community. I'm sure that people within those communities have their own agendas mm-hmm. and their 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 ideas of what they want to accomplish and the voice that they want to be heard, but I'm sure that people within those communities may have different ideas about what they'd like to have happen. And on the one hand, there may be a call to action. And on the other hand, that might be traumatizing for people. Mm -hmm. So it must be a a difficult spot to be in. Honestly, yes and no. Um, I think I've been a part of multiple of those communities. And it's always felt like there's just a diversity of response. Um, And so maybe I think the core... Um, especially in the past year, has just been here are multiple things and you can connect to whichever one works for you. Here are resources for queer and black therapists. Here are resources for uh, supporting black and trans and queer owned businesses. Here are resources for safe space groups that you can come in and share here is a way to start your own uh, web page, like just really just throwing out there, um, making it easy for people to connect in whatever way works for them. Here are lists of places that you can donate to whatever you need and then really putting zero pressure on anybody to do anything. Mm-hmm. And so just like recognizing that there is a diversity of coping mechanisms that people have and a diversity of you know, means and time. And there is there are so many ways that people can respond that there is always something that someone will connect to. I mean, definitely for me, even just seeing that people put those things together and spend that time feels validating and it feels like people care. And that's uh, that's not a negligible response. That definitely feels good and has an impact, which I think has been common to what I've seen is just really thinking creatively and broadly about the multiple ways that people can support their communities and also get support that they need. Now, you're not going to escape this interview without asking some direct clinical psychology questions, so I'm not going to let you go before we do that. (laughs) What are some specific clinical mental health types of issues that you look out for as a therapist when working with the Black and queer community and also the multiple minority identities? <laughs> Again, feels like an internship question. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm giving you practice for internship. Um, I, I mean, yeah, my experience is very, very limited on that. I mean, obviously being here in Hawaii, um, there are not many uh, black people here. Um, and being a minority ethnic identity here means such a different thing. Um, and there's limited access to, you know, queer specific uh, groups for my training. Um, yours is really technically the only one that I, I that's like dedicated to to that that I've had experience with. But um, I think I, I focus on just making sure that people are seen. Um, and sometimes it's as basic as Uh, assessments or intakes don't even ask people their sexual orientation or their gender or their pronouns Mm -hmm. um and making sure that i don't fall into that trap and i am more cognizant of the gaps in the system i think making sure that when there are problems happening in society 
like civil unrest due to George Floyd protests or recent yeah. shootings of there was a Micronesian teen. I remember Skycap who was shot recently. There was a black man shot here in Hawaii recently. There like, right from South Africa, yeah. Yes, yes. The shootings happened in Atlanta of of Asian people that were being completely botched in terms of how it was being reported in the news. All of those things I know affect me as um, a minority person, not because these things don't happen all the time, but when there is focus on it, it is hard to function and it is hard to just go about your day. And I know that in so many of my personal experiences, not having that acknowledged on a basic level is so disruptive. And so I want to make sure that therapy is not that place. And it doesn't mean I push people to talk about it, but it means that I acknowledge that that's there and I make sure I make the space early and prioritize differently because it is not a regular day and people have different uh, responses and people have different arcs for how long it takes to process certain things. And so just trying to think of the things that have negatively affected me and my experiences as it relates to a minority identity and also bringing that into the room for people to have that space and acknowledgement if they need it. Do you have any suggestions for how somebody who identifies as BIPOC or LGBTQ plus can seek out professional help if they need it? in a place that would be safe and validating for them? I I mean, yes and no, in the sense that there are very limited uh, resources, but also many people working on uh, compiling what is out there. Uh, so I think that's a big change that I've seen in the past year. Even just Googling by POC or LGBTQ, uh, QT by POC, therapy and resources, lots of lists now come up. And it depends on what people need. Are they looking for a long-term therapist? Are they looking for crisis? Um, I volunteer with a crisis group who's led by trans people and trains their crisis workers on specifically meeting the needs of LGBTQ people. And that could be something that I would direct someone to depending on what they need. So yeah, it, it's, it's not great because there still aren't a lot of things. Um, but at the same time, it's getting better and people within the community are working on uh, improving that. So it's better now than it used to be. I think I would now have at least a list of a couple therapists, whether or not they're in your state. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. another question. At least a crisis line or a peer support group would be available. And I think in lieu of something being available, then talk about ways how, about how to create that if it's not there which definitely I have had friends and I myself have done some of those creation of groups when they're needed. Sherry are there any last thoughts you'd like to leave us with today on this topic that you think are important to mention? I mean I think we kind of covered everything I guess I will just say that I think we are improving uh, in terms of as psychology and as a society in general in thinking about uh, the impact of just what it means to be a minority, but also what it means to have the intersections of multiple minority identities. But I also think that we need to move faster. I think the fact that we're moving actually, it sensitizes people. It gets people thinking 
and remembering about how stressful this is. Um, and so we really do need to push further in making sure that psychology is better at considering how it contributes to the systemic oppression of of people who are mar- in marginalized groups because I think we're not there yet and we're not moving as fast as even groups like social work or like other areas that are in helping professions so yeah I think it's good that we're talking about these things but I also uh, I guess I want to just leave us with we need to do more than talk. Sherry, it's been great having you on the show. And let me just say, if you were doing an internship interview, I would offer you the internship. (laughs) I've really enjoyed talking with you. You have a really bright future ahead of you, and I'm sure you're going to be a leader in the field. Thanks so much for coming in and talking with me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thank you.